Demons can sometimes use objects as conduits to achieve their desired goal. Their desired goal? Our souls, John. It wants her soul. No, no, no. Demons can't just take souls, Mia. The soul needs to be offered to the demon before it can take it. Welcome to Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series. It scares us just thinking about it. When you hear it, you're gonna think we're insane. Hosted by Marjorie. I'm gonna get you now. I can hear you breathing. Arnie. Oh my god. It's standing right behind you. And Stuart. God brought us together for a reason? This is it. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, go ahead. Where do I start? From the first occurrence. Today we're discussing The Conjuring 2, starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Francis O'Connor, Madison Wolfe, Simon McBurney, and Franca Potenta, directed by James Wan. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and you're in my house! <laughs> and this is the Marquis of Snakes, Stuart in L.A. And this is Marjorie. Perhaps I'm a demon. Well, welcome back, Marjorie. It's been a while since you've been on Now Playing. Here we are talking ghosts again. We're actually steeped in ghosts. I mean, we saw The Conjuring 2 opening night on Thursday. We were at theaters the night before seeing Ghostbusters for our donation drive coming up. Yeah. You guys were there too. Obviously not in the same theater, but yeah, I, I saw Ghostbusters in theaters Wednesday. Yes. Just a reminder for our listeners... Our donation drive, we are rapidly approaching the end. We only have five shows left. We have the two Independence Days and the three Ghostbusters, and the donation drive is over. So if you want to hear us bust some ghosts, talk about kicking E.T.'s ass, and a whole bunch of movies from 1986, including Critters, and there's some undead things in Night of the Creeps, and Men in Black, you can find all the details by going to nowplayingpodcast.com. Hit that banner at the top, but do it before it's too late. I'm really, really looking forward to talking Ghostbusters, but let's talk Conjuring 2. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a series I think we all have shown in two shows so far that no one has liked. <laughs> I liked it way back when it was called Insidious. I just want to point out, when James Wan was working on a small scale... I thought Insidious was a pretty good poltergeist ripoff and gave it the green arrow, but it hasn't gone so smoothly since. And I thought James Wan was done with this franchise, but it appears that death followed him when he tried to leave the genre and go make Furious 7. Yeah, we reviewed that last year. Of course, Paul Walker died during shooting. James Wan had said he was stuck in the horror ghetto. He was really looking forward to the big budget, high octane Fast and Furious and then apparently filming it exhausted him so much. Not the least reason has to be Paul Walker. Yeah, I have to believe that's a big part of... I mean, again, I felt like maybe he came back to this genre because he was afraid he was spooked. He thought it wouldn't let him leave. Yeah, he said he was looking forward to going back to smaller, more intimate films and returning to the sleeper hit he made three years ago. And we didn't cover that when it came out. We built up to Annabelle, which is, I think, something we don't have to talk about here, something James Wan wasn't involved, and which only makes a brief cameo in this particular movie. But it is within the world of the Warrens. We are back with 
Ed and Lorraine, who are played by two actors I really like, coming off very strong seasons on TV. Vera Farmiga is finishing the fourth and maybe her best season of Bates Motel. This was the reason I was excited to come back to the franchise. I'm always excited to talk Vera. And, you know, we've kind of knocked him from time to time, but I actually feel like Patrick Wilson had a really redemptive season on Fargo. And so I was excited to see the actors back in action. I'm behind on Bates Motel, so I haven't seen past halfway through season three. But yeah, I like her. I like her. I think she's a very elegant woman. And well, in this movie we'll get into, I think she didn't really get full range to do what she's capable of. But she seems like she's just elegant. I love when they do her hair up and she's wearing a very prim and proper outfits. She's kind of fun in that regard. It's a reason to want to see this movie, even if I think we are in the minority. It should be acknowledged that even though we didn't like Conjuring 1, everyone else kind of did. And it is kind of weird that no host could find love for it. (laughs) I like half of it. I want to point out the first 40 minutes, I'm with everybody else. I thought it was a really good retro horror movie. And then that second half happened. And um, to me, it's an indefensible, very poor exorcist ripoff at that point that has no fun at all. And I rewatched the original and then re-listened to our podcast. I gave it a week not recommend. Annabelle was just such off-the-rails badness that it tainted it. Plus, honestly, the reason I rewatched Conjuring is I can't keep this and Insidious straight. I was like, which one is this one? I know Insidious has veil head and lipstick demon and all that. So does this one. I swear <laughs> to God, there's a veil head in this following Patrick Wilson. Yeah. And... I do like Patrick Wilson. Probably my favorite role of his is Agent Lynch in the A-Team. You know what I really want to go back and rewatch, though, now that I'm familiar with him? (laughs) Watchmen? No, I mean, we just reviewed Watchmen, and I talked about him in that. Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera, where he plays Vincent Raul de Shawnee. (laughs) Is that a musical version? Is that the Lloyd Webber? Yeah. Oh, wow. I've never seen it. Yeah, he's... uh, He's the main boyfriend. He's the not scarred man Christine wants to get with and the Phantom's trying to keep her from. So I really kind of now want to have this morbid curiosity to go see that shit show again. (laughs) See what he's like singing in a Phantom of the Opera. Well, Universal is trying to reboot its entire classic Monsters catalog. Who knows if we'll get into it. Right now, we're only committing to him here with Conjuring. And with Conjuring, yeah, I stand by my review. I rewatched the film. I thought the first half, I'm like, wow, maybe I was too hard on it. Then I watched the second half and went, no, I was right. (laughs) No, here's the thing. It was just as bad as I remember it. And it's not bad and, oh my God, they shouldn't have made this movie. It just wasn't interesting or scary and i can tell you how i gauge a scary movie is if i'm afraid to turn off the lights after i watch it then i know it scared me on some deep down level not a problem with the conjuring yeah if you didn't have that clapping game you wouldn't have a movie at all i mean honestly it really does come down to that one little bit with lily taylor and the clapping game i mean take that away I don't know what it really had going for it. Yeah, take that away. You've got The Conjuring 2. (laughs) Conjuring 2. The only thing I knew about this one, other than the fact that James Wan, Vera, and Patrick were returning, was it was set in England, and it was going to take on a very famous case, the Enfield Poltergeist. And so, knowing that this was, quote, another true story, I did my due diligence. I did my research. I went and got the book, This House is Haunted, written in 1980, 
written by the man who was there for the entire time and documented it in 300 pages every single thing that happened in the London suburb where these family of four were allegedly attacked by a poltergeist. So I can answer all questions about what in this movie really happened, really in air quotes, and what was made up or exaggerated for this movie. Perhaps the most interesting detail you're going to find out is that Ed and Lorraine Warren were barely in Enfield. They were there for one day. (laughs) (laughs) I did a little bit of research too, and yeah, yeah, a lot of embellishment. Yeah. Okay, so Stuart, let me ask you though, do you believe in ghosts? Probably not. My feeling is in most documented cases, there is a logical scientific explanation, which is not to say that science has mastery over everything that happens on Earth. I do believe there is unexplainable phenomenon that eludes our science at the current moment. But by and large, when I hear about these true ghost stories, I tend to cock an eyebrow. But what about the spirit of the theater guild that you were telling me about in grade school, Stuart, and saying you saw in person? We should talk about that because children love to make up stories about ghosts that they experience. (laughs) In the case of Enfield Poltergeist. Let me just run down the timeline here. I want to start in 1974 which is the year that everyone became obsessed with The Exorcist. And Rose Hodson holds a seance with her friends. Rose is named Margaret in this movie. She is the eldest child of this family. And she performs a seance with an Ouija board in which she contacts a ghost she later claims she will see in this house. Now, she claims she never read The Exorcist, she never saw the movie, but I find it very suspicious that in the year that was popular and Linda Blair played with an Ouija board and got possessed, this girl also did a very similar thing. And then three years later, yes, August 1977, her family awakens to find bed shaking, a cabinet moving across the floor, knocks on the walls. They call the cops, one of whom sees a chair move a little bit. And then they begin to reach out to newspapers, tabloids. They get a tabloid, and I'm talking about bottom of the barrel, like National Enquirer kind of tabloid, to come on over, put a camera in their room to film them while the person is not there. And they allegedly capture footage of the smallest child, Janet, levitating. Now, I don't know if you saw the pictures of that, but... They were in the end credits. They were. There was one snapshot. There are actually three. I did see all three on the one website I hit. Yeah. She's jumping, right? Yeah, she jumped off her bed, and they said she was levitating. And (laughs) so that was enough for the tabloid reporter to reach out to a very real society that sounds very, very cool, the Society for Psychical Research. It was established in 1882. Everyone from Arthur Conan Doyle to prime ministers have been involved. It has real scientists doing real research into the paranormal, and they proceed to stay for about 15 months at this house. And one of those people that stayed there is Guy Playfield. He wrote the book I was talking about, and he is the one that really documented it. You will notice Conjuring 2 makes no mention of him. And that is because when Guy Playfield, who is still alive, was asked about the Warrens' involvement, he said, I saw them one day in the summer, and they claimed that they could help him make money off of this situation, and he told them to leave. 
Yeah, I remember what I read was one of the daughters spoke, who was very unhappy this movie's being made. Unlike the family from Conjuring 1, who was all over the bonus features, and I suspected they might be on some kind of payroll. Here, the daughter involved is like, I can't believe they're dredging this up again, why won't they leave us alone? And said that the Warrens showed up uninvited for one day, and then left. Yeah, the, the kids don't remember really meeting them, Don't definitely didn't get a crucifix or become besties with them. So this movie, it's important to stress, is complete fabrication. Whatever it says on the poster, and no matter the fact that you may believe that the infield haunting happened, it did not happen this way with these characters. This is Hollywood BS. Well, now I feel like I should get my money refunded. Yes, <laughs> along with Texas Chainsaw and so many other true stories on film. But I'll say this for the movie. I went in having done a little bit of that research. I knew nothing about the movie, but I did a little bit of fact checking on this supposed actual haunting. And I walked away thinking, okay, that is totally fake. There was one amazingly damning piece of evidence where the two girls were being interviewed. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Everyone, <laughs> when we get to that part in the movie, I'll point out all of these little details, but the, what, yeah. the mo how the movie portrays that and how it really happens is hilarious. Yeah, one of the girls said the house isn't haunted and started to giggle. So I went in thinking this is total fabrication, but as we talk about it, I'm actually impressed that this movie... James Wan or the writers are sitting there going, you know, we know a lot of people think this is bullshit and we know a lot of people think the Warrens are full of shit. So we're actually going to address that in this film. In a way, yes. Uh, not with all of the characters that were there. Again, Guy Playfield, the expert, is completely excised, but we will have a skeptic who is played by Franca Potente. Anita Gregory is her name. She was really there. Maurice Gross is given very short shrift in this movie, but he got his own film. BBC TV got a miniseries last year called The Enfield Haunting. I went and sought that out, and it is this story told from his perspective. It's a much more interesting one. And as we go through this movie, I will point out what's, quote, true and untrue, what is documented, and what is complete screenwriter Hollywood fabrication. So to kick that off, Arnie, why don't you give him this hogwash of a plot, and we can get into it. We start in Amityville in 1976, but after the haunting was done, because much like the real-life story of Enfield, Ed and Lorraine showed up too late. <laughs> they keep talking about Amityville as if they were the ones who beat the ghosts, but no, here we see it dramatized. It's months after the haunting, and now the Warrens have come to investigate. Vera Farmiga's Lorraine Warren is a clairvoyant, so she tries to psychically suss if there's a spirit there, while her husband Ed Warren, played by Patrick Wilson, watches with others in a seance. Lorraine first relives the original Amityville murders by Ronnie DeFeo, but then feels compelled to check the basement, where she sees an evil demon dressed as a nun, who in my notes I called Twisted Sister. <laughs> or Marilyn Manson. <laughs> yeah, I, I kept thinking Marilyn Manson was standing in the room. Yeah. It's actually, if you want to know, if you've seen the movie Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, it's the weird woman that goes, Silencio. That's who that actually that nun is being played by. It's, it's an actual woman. I was surprised. Not a drag queen. Yes, I <laughs> stayed for the credits thinking it might be the composer again in drag. <laughs> he loves to do it. 
The nun shows her Ed killed, impaled, so Lorraine flees and asks Ed if they can stop investigating the paranormal and instead still make money for speaking engagements. But across the pond in Enfield, a borough of London, a new haunting is about to begin in the home of Peggy Hodgson, played by Frances O'Connor. Peggy is a newly divorced woman and mother of four children, including 13-year-old daughter Margaret, bland brother Johnny, stuttering youngest Billy, and 11-year-old Janet, the Reagan of this exorcist story, <laughs> played by Madison Wolf. When Janet and Margaret play with a homemade Ouija board, they unleash the ghost of Bill Wilkins, a 71-year-old man who died in the home years before. Bill torments the children by moving furniture and changing the channel on the telly <laughs> and screaming, My house! <laughs> He's a simple man. <laughs> he likes that Thatcher lady. <laughs> <laughs> These random acts of annoyance cause a priest to call on the Warrens in the States to investigate. Reluctantly, Ed and Lorraine come, meeting two other investigators, believer Morris Gross and skeptic Anita Gregory. They have a seance to communicate with Bill, who talks through Janet. And while they stay and Ed does random home repairs, Bill gets nastier, attacking the mother in a flooded basement and slamming Janet around. But video catches little Janet faking an incident. She's in the kitchen breaking dishes and bending spoons herself. Convinced it's all a hoax, the investigators pack up to leave. But on the train, Ed and Lorraine play back the tapes and find a hidden message from Bill. The twisted sister demon is there and won't let Bill leave. So the Warrens rush back to find the house in shambles as Bill is about to have Janet jump out the window and impale herself on a tree made sharp by a lightning strike probably also caused by Bill or the nun. Or the Hollywood screenwriters who made all of that up. Yes. <laughs> Ed goes into the house, but the door locks behind him, so he's alone to save Janet. And Ed is blinded when a ghost undoes a radiator valve and Ed is blasted in the eyes with hot steam. But even with limited eyesight, he goes and catches Janet as she's about to jump from the window, though both balance precariously, Ed holding onto a falling curtain. But Lorraine gets in through a broken door and, thanks to a psychic communication from Bill, knows how to defeat the Twisted Sister. And it's the Rumpelstiltskin rule. <laughs> Say the Twisted Sister's name and it will be defeated. <laughs> I love that. And it's been feeding the name. It's like, I hadn't even keeping that hidden. It's like Rumpel keeps like writing it everywhere that she goes. <laughs> <laughs> and because of a previous vision, Lorraine knows the Twisted Sister's real name is Valak. So she races in the bedroom, tells Valak she knows his name, banishing the Twisted Sister, and then saves Ed and Janet from falling on the tree below. With the spirits gone, Ed and Lorraine return back home as the Hodgsons live in the house for 25 more years until Peggy dies in that same chair where Bill died. It actually wasn't the same chair, but eh, whatever. That chair was needing help in the 70s, <laughs> let alone in the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, they got rid of the chair. She died in a chair watching TV. But Yeah, hey. it wasn't the same. It was the same corner. Yeah, the chair's not possessed. <laughs> okay. And credits roll. All right, we're already having a little bit of fun here. I think I'm showing my hand, but I want to say something up front. I don't think this movie is real, and it does anger me that they're selling this movie as a true story. A lot. But I tried to put that aside because I wanted to judge this movie as a horror movie, as a thrill ride, as an experience to be enjoyed as popcorn entertainment and truth be damned. So that is what I want to say off the bat. Whether you believe Amityville or Enfield or any of this is real, 
I want to judge the movie just strictly as an experience. And see, I went in not knowing if this was real or not. I didn't do any research. I guess I expected some embellishment, but not to the degree that it is. Yeah, I would hope that even if you didn't have any knowledge, just watching this movie and when a zoetrope comes alive and a giant creature starts crawling across the wall, you might think that that was made up. But we'll get there when we get there. I definitely feel like there's a lot of different things going on in this movie. And probably the most exciting stuff, for me anyway, is when they pull through that window, which they do a lot in this movie. It's kind of a theme going in and out of of windows. That's some of the Fast and Furious stuff I thought James Wan has, is this never-cutting shot that just goes everywhere. He's bringing some CGI knowledge in there. Definitely. But these windows are super famous. Everybody knows if they know anything about Amityville, that house had some awesome windows. And it was kind of exciting to begin here. I think it is the right footing to start us back in the Ed and Lorraine story is that, yeah, here they are doing a seance, wrapping up what may be their most famous haunting event. And see, I got excited that it was in Amityville and and I thought maybe it would spend more time there because I grew up with a mother terrified of things like this and drilled in our head that Amityville was real and all this. My mother loved ghost stories and horror like that. So I was kind of excited. Maybe I'd get to see that. I know nothing about Amityville. I learned a little bit researching this so I could understand her vision after the fact, but you knew the windows. I did know the windows. I didn't even know that. So you like got all giddy that it was Amityville and I'm like... How'd you know? Yeah, that house, it was just the selling point of the poster of everything. Well, it's got eyes. It looks like a creepy house. You look at that house and go, yeah, it's haunted. I believe them. (laughs) I mean, and it was tied to a real murder. Yeah. All I know about Amityville is from Eddie Murphy's Delirious about (laughs) how if a black person goes in a house and hears, get out, black person goes, nice house, we gotta go. And the white people stay. That's all I know about Amityville. I had no idea there were real murders. So I was really confused why Vera Vermigla's Lorraine Warren is seeing this guy who looks like he's out of Tucker and Dale versus evil shoot people in bed. Yeah, I believe that this has been explained that he was on some kind of psychotropic drug, maybe LSD or something like that, and he ended up deciding that it was a good idea to get a shotgun, kill his parents, kill his two young brothers, and his teenage sister, and that's what we see in this recreation. It's kind of a cool recreation, stylistically, is the way that Lorraine is going room to room, when you get to a mirror... There's the bubble-looking dude on the other side who's mirroring her actions almost exactly. Very good, like that Jimmy Fallon, Mick Jagger kind of mirror work going on. Yeah, that was, I think, one of the most inventive things that this movie has done is Lorraine reenacting Ronnie DeFeo's murders. You know, she's holding the 12-gauge shotgun and she's pumping it and you're recoiling from the shot. And when she shoots... The way the blood appears, it's quite obvious a cut, right? The blood is just suddenly there. It's not flying out. You don't see it drip. It's like they're asleep, and then the next moment, they could have been dead for hours. And Because it's CGI work, because the actors were never covered in blood. Correct. I don't know if it was CGI work or literally if it was just a dummy in the bed, and they said cut, and then went and paintbrushed some blood on and said roll. But either way... It's a stylistic choice that I like. I wouldn't have taken it well if it wasn't in 
an astral projection dream the way it is. The further, you mean. Don't think I wasn't thinking it. (laughs) But because of how this played out, I actually really liked it. And it did intrigue me to the point that I looked up this DeFeo. And one thing that bothers me a lot in this movie is how deep people sleep. And I'll... That's ironic. (laughs) I'm wondering. (laughs) Only Marjorie can make that joke. Yeah. Well, I think I'd wake up if you were blasting a 12-gauge two doors down, is what I'm saying. And he goes room to room, and everybody's still asleep. He actually explains it that his sister helped him, and then he decided to shoot his sister, too, in one of his many stories. It's worth Wikipediaing, but this movie made me interested enough to Wikipedia it. But maybe not sign on to the whole 15-part installment franchise. You know, they got a new Amityville coming. Jennifer Jason Lee's in it. You got Ryan Reynolds, you got Jennifer Jason Lee, you got Margot Kidder. There's some laughs, at least. Do we have four months on our schedule? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is about fitting it in. But I agree, it's a gap in our horror coverage that we haven't covered Amityville. And I think, yeah, it's worth covering at some point. But we get a taste of it here. And again, if this doesn't feel like it's totally the story, you miss the whole hauntings that happen after to the Lutz family, the family that takes over after these real murders. What she's trying to do is determine if there's a connection between the two. Was that just a kid that went and randomly killed his family? Or was there a supernatural force influencing it? We suddenly see these dead family members pop up with white eyes and lead Lorraine down into the basement. So we know it's supernatural. But I need to say, in real life, Ronnie DeFeo never said he was possessed by a demon. That is complete bull hockey for this movie, is that he was claiming a demon made him kill his family, and she says that's what she's trying to figure out. Was he murderous, or was he inhabited by a demon? He's claimed mobsters, he's claimed drugs, he's claimed his parents were planning to kill him, so he had to kill them first. He's claimed schizophrenia. He's claimed everything but demon. Oh, I didn't know that. I I assumed that that was a part of the story. It's certainly a part of the lore of the story, but it's how we think of Amityville, is that from this real murder sprang a lot more creepy things like bees and a red basement and blood coming out of the walls and disembodied voices. And so... If you didn't have that in your mind already, we know when we see the murdered family members in the basement pointing to the mirror, we are to know there's some larger evil here, and it's going to be an evil that's going to follow her into the rest of the movie. Yes. Valak, the twisted sister nun with the CGI tooth mouth who she finds in the basement of Amityville, and who we're later going to find out she already saw seven years earlier in the case that made her lock herself up for eight days before going out to help the people in Conjuring 1. We said, what the hell did she see in that vision? Now it's all tying together. She saw the nun. Yeah, and this is the exact same thing. I mean, when she has the vision of her husband being killed by it, I'm like, I can't believe they're just remaking Insidious. But this is Insidious. Is this a horror film that's going after the Passion of the Christ type of audience? Because so much of this movie is talking really about God and Jesus and heaven and the power of the Lord. And I got that there were priests in The Exorcist. But I mean, one of those priests was having a crisis of faith anyway. It didn't feel like Christianity was the end-all be-all. But here... 
I think that a lot of what they're doing with ghosts, with demons, all of that, with the crucifixes that show up everywhere and that it scares demons like it would a vampire, I really felt like this is trying to be a horror movie for the Christians who would find horror movies distasteful. Well, first of all, I would say if you go back to our Exorcist show, I have always advocated that movie is for believers. True, you did. Many fundamentalist people might not like the idea of watching horror movies. That is a horror movie that tests their faith, and the people that have faith come out stronger for that testing. So I think it is the rare case where it does espouse a real spiritual element to it. And this movie desperately wants to tap into what the Exorcist, this franchise wants to tap into what Exorcist had going. And ironically, it's picking all the stories of people who saw The Exorcist and decided to make up stories for money. (laughs) (laughs) It was highly influential in real life. And uh, yes, now it's come back into the movies. We're watching a movie about real people that were inspired to imitate it. Yes, that is my personal belief. But before we get to England and all that stuff, let's just wrap up with Valak, a completely made-up character. While Janet in the real world was eventually sent off to a nunnery. She was forced to leave the house and and hung with them for a while and got better, was healed by them. There is no other account of nuns being a part of the Enfield story or that there is this demon nun hanging in the background of all these other hauntings. This is completely the contrivance. That said, it's fairly scary looking. I can go along with this as a vision of death. I did a little bit of brief research here. And Valak is a real Gaetic demon. And Valak was the great president of hell with 30 legions of demons under his commands. But he's supposed to appear as a small boy with angel wings riding a dragon, not a nun. Hmm. uh, Funny enough, Janet, in real life, the one that she evoked was Gozer. (laughs) Believe it or not. (laughs) Yes, Gozer was uh, what she saw or what she talked about when she talked about greater demons. So I'll just say if the nun was a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, this movie would be an instant brown era recommend. <laughs> Definitely. But this movie is very long. I just want to put it out there right now. It is two hours and 15 minutes, and it's an hour before our heroes are going to get to the haunted house, which is the longest act one I have ever seen. Oh my God. I did not look at the running time of this movie before going in. My can-you-get-on-with-it meter was exploding (laughs) at 45 minutes. And I agree. It is too long to ask anyone. I've never seen a movie ask someone to wait longer for people to come into the stories. Unless you consider The Exorcist, where Max von Sydow didn't show up for an hour and a half. But we weren't expecting him to. There were other priests. There were other things going on. But to bide that time, every now and then they cut back to the Warrens so that she can keep having these dreams and visions of Valak here. And something that I noticed after the fact, I was aware that there was a lot of lettering and tiles going on in these scenes, but it is only after I learned the demon's name at the end that I realized, aha, they're spelling out the name in all of these scenes. There's a scene where she's with her daughter and she's putting together an alphabet bead that had like the V and the A and the L in it. I'm sure of it. And then there's a breakfast table scene where like Things on the walls. I remember a V sticking out, and I was like, why did the director film this with the V standing there? I bet you James Wan is going to crow when this comes out on Blu-ray that he has inserted the name all throughout 
all of these super- otherwise superfluous scenes. Okay, see, I didn't put that together, but I wondered why they had such weird letter decorations in their little nook. Yeah. Like, I thought it said, like, Valor or something. I don't know mm-hmm. what it said on the wall. And it was, like, sitting on the chair rail. Yeah, there was a love was prominent. There was a, they had a plaque with love, which a lot of people did in the 70s. I just want to say people hung up signs that just said love on them. So it wasn't out of character of this being 1977, but it just felt a little weird. So much so that it stood with me. And then after I realized that everything was about her figuring out this name, I went, aha. I do think one of the better kind of jump scares in this movie, too, happens when she follows this demon into her husband's office. And they play this game where... There's a painting that Ed has made of the demon, and then there's the silhouette of the demon and watching them come together and attack her. It's kind of fun. First of all, I think Lorraine is a horrible wife because she's not communicated to her husband, hey, you just painted this demon that says you're going to die, and now you're going to freak me the fuck out by having this on. I can say fuck because this movie's rated R. I don't know why this movie's rated R either, but it's rated R, so I can curse. So... I think she really should have told her husband, hey, that's a demon we should all be afraid of instead of, yes, hang it in your office along with all your other paintings. <laughs> yeah, their house is uber tacky and not just because they have a closet full of haunted things. But yeah, if I were to paint that, I wouldn't hang it up. That's just not one you put on the wall. It's reminding me of the new nightmare scene where Robert Englund is painting paintings of the Freddy demon. It's like... <laughs> It's pretty tacky. But again, no one's ever accused Ed and Lorraine of taste. (laughs) Well, and you know, speaking of the taste, I was enthralled at the number of sweater jackets that Ed had and the sheer number of duster sweaters that they put Lorraine in in this film. (laughs) I don't know why it was all about the sweaters this time. Uh, You know, it's colder. You know, we're going to find out most of this movie takes place at Christmas, even though I already pointed out the haunting itself is documented having lasted for 15 months. They're going to claim that it lasts four months. And all the Christmas iconography came out of so left field that I had to check if Shane Black was a producer. Well, it is documented that most of the occurrences built up to December. But uh, in order to talk about that, we should probably jump across the pond. London's calling. So here's something that puzzles me. How did Valak get from America to England? Does Valak have a passport, take commercial transport? How does a demon get cross-country? On the wind. Uh, locusts, I believe, if you follow <laughs> the exorcist. Uh, obviously, if you were to apply too much uh, realism, it wouldn't make any sense. We're to understand that demons can go anywhere at any time because they're just that evil. Yeah, he's not even haunting just one place at a time. I mean, he's over in London, and then he's in a painting in wherever Ed and Lorraine live here in the States, and then back over to London. He's a busy guy, that Valak. Definitely so. Perhaps he's hanging out in the further with Lipstick Face and all the other demons. You know, who knows exactly how that works. Enfield, London. Never heard of it. It's a suburb in the north, and I had to look it up, but the name I don't think means anything beyond the poltergeist. I think it's this event that put it on the map. We're going to see things here in the beginning that are more or less documented at some point during the haunting, although the order has been changed to make it more dramatically interesting. I'm always okay with that. If you want to make something more exciting by rearranging things, go for it. I agree. I'm also liking the setting of London. We get over there, London Calling starts playing, we see 
a whole bunch of stock footage from 1970s Britain. I'm enjoying the locale and the change of pace. I mean, I, London ha is such a rich gothic history, you know? So I think that it's rife for a ghost story. Although not this era. I don't feel like the late 70s, you say London, and I think, yeah, sex pistols. What well, we see, punks, civil unrest, no bread, no water, and rugby. <laughs> you know, like, that's what we get a lot in this opening. And this is also where we're introduced to the main characters. Ed and Lorraine are going to claim they're main characters in the story. They're not. It is really about this Hodson family. And we first meet Janet here. And she's handed a spirit board and a Ouija board, a homemade. I think it's made out of like cereal boxes or something. Yeah, I think it was a cereal box. And I love this actress. I just want to throw that out there right away. She is amazing. She emotes with her face so well. She's on point with everything she does in this movie. She's good. I think so, too. And it starts right here when she's holding that cigarette. And I looked this actress up and... I haven't seen that cat movie, Keanu, and I didn't get past episode one of Scream the series, so I haven't seen her, but I really think she's going to be the breakout of this film. Yeah, no, she is good, and there's, yeah, there's no reason to think that she won't get more work as long as she's a cute kid. After that, eh, you know, just go ask Chloe Grace Moretz. It can be hard to find work when you're a young 20-something, but when you're young, when you're this young, Haley Joel Osment young, and you're in a horror movie, you really do stand out because you can convey fear, which not every kid can do. Yeah, she gets braces, she'll go far. <laughs> well, <laughs> have you seen the real Janet? I saw the picture at the end of the film. Okay, well, this is a dialed back version of Janet and her overbites. And <laughs> a lot of these characters, when we finally see them, they are the Hollywood versions. And they have much more interesting stories. Not surprisingly, the kid that you said had no point in this, older brother Johnny, I think is actually an interesting detail. He did not go to school with them. He was actually in uh, special school because psychiatrists had deemed this family problematic and him specifically as learning disabled, and it made the mother very angry. And so part of what she pushed out against when people were trying to come in and study her children was coming out of that anger that they had alienated her eldest son and called him a problem when she didn't think he was. Leading even more evidence to the belief this is all fake. Definitely so, yes. And little Billy did have a lisp, but he was never made fun of it, as far as I know. He was made fun of the fact that he lived in the ghost family house, and that's mm -hmm. why he was bullied here. But they've created a whole subplot for him and Crooked Man that is here for uh, spinoff reasons. Entirely undocumented in the research is the idea that he really wants to play with this zoetrope and play a nursery rhyme I've never heard of. Crooked Man, do you know anything about this? I have never heard this at all. I looked it up and apparently it's a English nursing rhyme talking about some Scottish leader who they thought was crooked because Scotland had just gotten religious and political freedom. Uh, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, we all have different nursery rhymes and they are regional. I definitely feel like the screenwriters got off message. In a movie that is too long, they create a subplot for little Billy that does not need to be here, except for the fact that they want to have an Annabelle with Crooked Man and, and spin that character off later. But he is preoccupied with what's an old time kind of a movie device, like before there was 
home movie projectors, they had little toys like the Zoetrope where you spin it, and if you look in the slots in the correct way, it looks like an animated character, like a flip book. You know, it's this crooked man character walking with a cane, and he's going to come to life. I really thought that this was setting us up for... Something like the poltergeist clown where the demon would inhabit something else as a distraction or something else that the kids played with. It's kind of what they do, right? Kind of, but it doesn't pay off because it appears twice at two times that you didn't think it was going to and it didn't really fit. And can I just say, CGI is not scary. When the nun got her CGI teeth, it pulled me out. Anytime Crooked Man showed up... In his tall, lanky, nightmare-before-Christmas-looking proportions, there was nothing scary there. I think the reason why he moves so awkwardly is they're trying to retain the way that it would look to look into the zoetrope, that he moves exactly as he does when he's this animated character. But it ends up being incredibly distracting because, A, this never happened. We can argue about some of this stuff, but this never happened. It never could happen, and it just doesn't look right. It doesn't integrate with the things that we do see in this haunting. And, you know, it's that's because the haunting stuff here, by 2016 standards, is rather mundane. I mean, what these girls are going to talk about, there's also the older sister I mentioned. She's, her, in real life, her name is Rose. Here, she's been renamed Margaret. The only thing we really know about her is that she loves Hutch, David Soul from Starsky and Hutch. She has a lot of posters of him up on the wall. <laughs> she should have gone with Starsky. He became a director. Yeah, well, Hutch had a musical career. You'll see her put on the headphones and listen to his love balladry later. <laughs> of course, he was also in Salem's Lot. We've covered that one. But those are the kids. What they go through here, while would be terrifying for any family to actually experience, if that indeed happened is not particularly the stuff of great horror movie cinema. Shaking beds, knocks on the walls, a scary old man that appears in a chair are just not enough for a story. And we said with Conjuring 1, James Wan is great at puzzles. And we referenced Saw, we referenced Insidious, and Conjuring 1 with the clap game. Here, there's no traps. There's a few little scary setups that would be in any ghost movie you know early on when bill starts showing up because they play with the ouija board and if i hadn't read this i never would have thought about it but according to the real hodgson family they played with a ouija board and awoke the spirits and then the hauntings began so that is the inciting incident just like in the exorcist yeah which they claim they did not read but which is documented that they did imitate in 1974 after that, Bill starts doing these small things and the little fire truck goes into a tent in the hallway because I actually feel that tent's there because they are so struggling for money that that's going to be their home in a week or two. Oh, yeah. It is a downtrodden family. And I think that's part of what makes them endearing is that they don't have money for biscuits and they're just <laughs> not doing well. God knows what's going on in the laundry room. Yeah, the washer just starts to explode water. I can be pretty lazy. I'll be admitted. Like, if I spill something, maybe I don't clean it up for a day. But my God, if the washing machine sprouts a leak, <laughs> I do not let it turn into a lake. You at least close the valve if you don't fix the problem. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't flooded with water. The washing machine is actually what flooded it, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's where I was confused because I saw, you know, it sprang a leak. And then they leave. I thought they turned it off, but I guess not. 
Yeah, it became a lagoon. The, the pool, kids. Uh, now you have a now you have a pool to play in. But uh yeah. But you know, while there are a lot of kids here again like there were in the last film, I feel like I'm connecting with this family a little bit more because of their impoverished situation. I mean, when we were first introduced to the whole family in that sweeping camera shot that's like always moving and following different people, I felt bad for little Billy and his desire for a biscuit. Yeah, he was actually kind of lovable, wasn't he? In a Tiny Tim kind of way. And the two sisters, when they pull out the Ouija board, you kind of feel bad. I mean, they start off with the general, are there any spirits here who will answer our questions? But then they hit the heart of it, is our dad ever coming home? I find these people to be in a bad situation, and I'm into the family in relationships that never really get explored again. And... And the screenwriters are working extra hard to get you there. It's worth pointing out, those kids did have a relationship with their dad. Their dad saw them every Saturday. He was present in their life. And he just didn't have a lot of positives to say about this ghost hunting thing. He was not a believer. So many people have chosen to excise his opinion on the infield haunting. Ah, I wondered what the story was behind him. This is a sympathetic family The things that are happening to them are believably haunting, but I don't feel like there's a lot to grab you if you didn't start inserting a Hollywood narrative, which is what they do. The little girls are on film. There were journalists that came and filmed them. She starts speaking in a voice. They played that voice at the end of the movie, and it is really creepy. Mm -hmm. The real-life tape is creepier than anything in this movie. Well, yeah, I want to point it out. I feel like it's the best part of the scam. I do believe these girls made it up, and I do believe in most cases you can see where they're doing it rather easily. But that voice, it's the bit of evidence that the author of the book kept going back to is that he was just like, in order to create this, I mean, he had ventriloquists come in. He had larynx specialists come in to study this. In order to create this sound, she would need to use a part of her throat that would give her a cough or give her a soreness that she never complained of. And yet the one thing I did read is the voice only manifested itself after the guy who was there investigating said, well, we've got everything. If only the spirit would speak. And like <laughs> next day, the spirit started speaking. Yes. When you look at the footage, and I do encourage everyone who's seen this movie to just YouTube the BBC 1980 special. I think that ran a couple years after these incidents. And you can see the girl really affect that voice. She is grinning. She is laughing. This is also the same footage you pointed out where it's, she claims it's not really haunted. And her sister like hits her. And is like, don't tell him that. I mean, like. It it's all exposed. It's right out there. And then she does this voice and it's like, okay, well, the voice is creepy, but there's nothing supernatural about it. When they recreate this in the movie, it's like her skin color changes and she turns and, you know, starts bending her body in weird proportions. And the voice is like three voices at once. I mean, it's way way over the top here. They, I guess they felt the need to overdo it. They didn't feel like making it believable, making it like found footage was enough. They had to Hollywood it up. They had to Linda Blair it. I really was kind of going with it in the beginning. And it's again, because Madison Wolf is so charismatic on screen. She's commanding the screen 
And the first conversation she has where she's sitting there having conversations in both parts, but it's still her voice in both cases. And it's like, you're trespassing in my house and all of that. I'm really into it. I want to see where this is going. But going back to the original film, there were three stages of a spiritual haunting. And the first was infestation, then oppression, then possession. We spend over an hour on the infestation phase. And man, when the ghost is tormenting her because she's home from school with a fever and he's like, no, I don't want to watch your sitcom. I'm like, really? This is as scary as you're going to get? Oh my God, the remote's missing. (laughs) Guess what? I have a poltergeist every day. You say there are no traps. This is the kind of traps they have. Where did the remote go? This is what Juan does. You know, the fire truck, all of that kind of... But that's not a game like the clap game. This isn't a recurring thing. This is just this scene's spooky thing that we'll never see again. The games that Juan played before was setting up the clap game early and then putting those hands in the closet. Here, I feel like he's on autopilot. Honestly, I feel that this demon had a procrastination problem because everything that we're seeing was so long and so drawn out. Why don't you just cut to the chase? Why are there... Well, this is the stuff that's documented. The reason why they keep going back and doing this stuff is this is the stuff that they know to have been observed, if not actually legitimately happen. They have to create plausibility before then they can go really big in the second half and show you things that never have been documented or seen by anyone. And so they felt the need to make this authentic. What I'm hearing from all of us is nobody here is believing this shit. Not even in the early stuff that seems mundane. This does not feel real. It's too Hollywood. It's too slick. The camera is moving in these grandiose fashions and flipping and turning. And it doesn't feel like found footage. It doesn't feel naturalistic at all. It feels way over the top, even in this first hour. And the real world stuff, I think, would be interesting in that YouTube documentary you mentioned, but it's not working as a movie. I need escalation. I need terror. I would like to be at least creeped out. And I'll tell you, creeped me out and made me scared they were going to fall down the stairs. (laughs) Well, and this that they have to set up here, and they could do it faster, is that what is documented was there was this 72-year-old man named Bill Wilkins who did die in that house in a chair i don't think it was the same chair i mean like they would have moved his stuff out i don't think they would have left the chair for her to keep coming back to actually the mom said that her husband ex-husband purchased it all with the furniture in it oh okay so they have to set up that this is the ghost i want to point out in the footage it's established that girl speaks with the same voice but she imitates over 600 different spirits. This house was allegedly filled with tons of ghosts, not just this one. And for the sake of the movie, and it's probably the right instinct, they focus on the idea that there's this creepy old man that's going to get her. My problem with it is, we already saw this. Insidious Chapter 3. The guy who couldn't breathe trying to make the girl jump out the window on the oxygen mask. This is literally the same movie. Uh, James Wan didn't make it, but it's the same movie. Agreed. I was just getting all kinds of deja vu with this. Exorcist, Insidious, 1, 3. 
the nun to Veilhead, yep. the astral projection to the further, yep. and the damn slow, boring pace to the Conjuring Part 1. <laughs> yeah, they've retained all the bits, and most of them are ones that we wanted to excise. But all right, let's get to it. The one thing that scared me in this movie is when there's that dog next door who rings the bell to go out, which our dogs do, and <laughs> the dog is sitting by the bell, ringing the bell, and I'm like, man, they're going to kill the dog again. Oh, my God. I was about ready to walk out of the theater if they were going to kill another dog because I'm sorry. You just can't do that. And the dog transforms into the crooked man. And at first, I thought the dog was exploding. I really thought something was like contorting and dying in front of us, which was disturbing me. And then it became a weird CGI creature. But we don't see the dog again literally until the end credits. And so I spent the next hour like, is the dog alive? <laughs> dog alive? <laughs> this is the stuff that is the case. This is what they could have made the movie about if they weren't trying to insert the Warrens. But again, they want to say that writing in here are the Americans that are going to solve all the problems. And so an hour into this movie, Ed and Lorraine are, are contacted by, quote, the church. I don't know what church. I don't know who's supposedly begging for their help over there. They seem completely unwanted and by all accounts are never requested to appear at these things. But I, when you say the church, it's implied that it's the Catholic church. No one refers to the Baptist church as the church. Right. No, Yeah. I, I think you're right. But I find it highly unlikely that the Pope has them on speed dial and is <laughs> like, oh, hey, we need for you to investigate. But that's what they'd like for you to believe is that the Warrens have cred. And the problem is, is that Lorraine doesn't want to do it anymore because it might kill her husband because she's had this veilhead vision. And unfortunately, thanks to these movies, I've actually looked into the Warrens and I feel they have no credibility. And part of me really is angry at these films for turning them into these personable heroes when all evidence is to the contrary. And more, I'm trying to decide, is this just for franchise reasons? We need heroes that we can bring in time and time again so we can shoehorn the Warrens in? Or is it really crass that Lorraine Warren is on some kind of payroll and so we're going to make deify this scammy couple but they try so hard to make them the all-american loving couple with their daughter and they're at home and it's it's a sweet sweet family and i think they're trying really hard to endear this to the warrens and how you know they believe in god and ed is so calm and whenever he goes to a house he plays mr fix it for all the customers that they go to which makes them really boring i want to point out forget whether it's ethically right to portray them this way these are boring ass people the fact that they are all goodness and they're being portrayed in the most positive light means they have no dimension it means that there's nothing really interesting about them they'd be much more interesting if they were fighting if this was a real challenge here i can't stand their lovey-dovey scenes together here are two actors that i think are great they are horrible they have no chemistry i did never wanted to say this but vera is terrible in this movie but she's relegated to worried wife and doesn't really do anything. But we needed to believe that there was something at stake here. And, I, and we are because Ed's life is at stake. But I just don't feel like this conflict is coming through either in the lines, the performance. I don't want to watch these characters save anybody. They are really dull. Especially Ed. Lorraine at least has the 
clairvoyance and the dark secret of Ed's death. Ed, my God, what can't the man do? He paints, he sings, <laughs> he plums, he did car repair in the last film, and he's an exorcist? My God, this guy is practically a Mary Sue, or I guess a Gary Sue. No, it's a Marty Sue. Whatever. They aren't the ones that are interesting. I mentioned the fact that I saw the Enfield Poltergeist TV miniseries. The one that you really want to pay attention to is Maurice Gross, who is relegated to an almost non-existent part here. He's played by Simon McBurney, a charming English character actor. His story is really the backbone of that TV series, and it isn't even completed here. He gets one scene where he's smoking a pipe and tells them, oh, I'm here because I need to believe in the afterworld. My daughter died. This is everything to the case. The reason why this went on for 15 months is because he believed that this girl, Janet, could tell him something about his dead daughter, Janet. And so he wasn't going to let it alone. I think he helped encourage these girls to keep this going on so that he could get some kind of closure for a death that had happened only 12 months before. It was a weird kind of grief counseling. The TV movie goes into that. It allows for a reading in which it says that this was all made up, but it had a dramatic consequence nonetheless. This movie just says, oh, he's a boring guy in the background. He's our Specs and Tucker. And I guess that makes Anita the skeptic. Well, and I really think you're right that his story would have been fascinating and given us something to be invested in and to be emotionally invested in instead of Lorraine with her visions. and Ed singing Elvis is something yeah. we, none of us needed. No, no one needed that. But... I also kind of feel that Anita got kind of left out in the cold. All of a sudden she shows up and she's like bitchy with her dowdiness. I think maybe there needed to be more interaction among the four of them to make this all work so we get some other side of it. Well, while Lorraine is outside having her cigarette conversation with Maurice and talking about his daughter, Ed is doing repairs in the basement and... Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, Stuart, they never stopped the flood, and that has to stink after a while. <laughs> you know, I, I, they're building up to one of the better set pieces here. I, I do feel like, again, this never happened, but who wouldn't want to see a watery attack? We get a Jaws moment, I suppose. This is the one place in the movie where it actually startled me when Bill Wilkins' face appeared under the water and he grabbed her arm. That's the only time I jumped. And that's not because it was scary, but because I didn't expect it. Yeah, Ed's trying to plumb and stop this, and he's waist deep in the water with his shoes on and everything. I would have, you know, at least got some shorts or something, but he's in there, and Peggy, the mother, sees something behind him, but doesn't say anything, because nobody <laughs> says anything in this movie. She just tries to strain her light a little bit more, and so you think it's coming up on him, and when she finally says something... It comes after her, and it's preceded by this bloop in the water that I was like, what is that? Because he pops out. I honestly thought I caught them doing a practical effect. I thought that bloop was like the beginning of a wire being pulled, but turns out it's Bill's dentures. <laughs> kind of undercuts the moment a little. I gotta say, if your main villain bites, scary. I, I go with that. Your main villain's teeth fall out because they're not real. <laughs> I could deal with gumming, honestly. I could. <laughs> gumming ghost, not that scary. 
I just thought it was funny. Why does the dentures keep getting put in the water? I know you're supposed to like put them in a glass of water, but when you go to bed at night to keep them moist, is he thinking the whole basement's a good place to keep the dentures? I don't think he was going to bed yet. Who knows? He does disappear, but I think it was an accident. I think he meant to get a really good one in and maybe he bit a little bit too voraciously. But I really resented the idea. This movie hits often. I mean, forever. In almost every scene, there's even like a new, random news report, something about honesty, about someone returning a wallet or something like that. <laughs> in all given moments, it's trying to say that honest people believe and have faith in all of that. And if you have any kind of skepticism, if you have any kind of doubt, if you want to actually have scientific veracity for all of this you are a bully you are a terrible person and you are no help at all this movie is basically encouraging people to be foolish and it makes me angry yeah anita is an interesting character because she wants to actually disprove these hauntings which i think is the right approach to take here we can comfort the family and i appreciate the warrens want to help this family through their trauma but we also need to recognize that the answers here are probably that the girls made it up yeah there's just something that plays as disingenuous about all of this the warrens go there ostensibly to prove it false, and yet the only one who doesn't believe it does come off just as an outsider. Yeah, she is the villain of this story because she won't take something on blind faith, and blind faith is apparently how you should live your entire life, never asking questions or digging deeper. Boy, you wouldn't make it long on this podcast if you took <laughs> that attitude. <laughs> and Anita, she's played by Franca Potenta, who's an actress. This is a weekend of release recording. But we've already recorded a Born review with her in it. We're going to be talking a lot about Franca coming up in the next few weeks. Obviously, her career went much smaller as she has one of the most minor roles in this film. Lola ran too far away from Hollywood, apparently. <laughs> and Anita is right. I mean, they are faking it, at least a little. The girls have admitted in real life that some of the things they contrived. And the experts have tried to say, well, that's always the case. When kids deal with poltergeists, they end up trying to imitate them or something. Lots of excuses were given while the girls were busted for some of the things they do. And caught on camera here is Janet bending spoons, throwing knives, and pretending like it's a ghost when it was really her. And this is what I was talking about earlier. I'm intrigued that they bring this up. I mean, the girls were caught bending spoons here. They completely fictionalize it to have her suddenly teleport. She's been teleporting and appearing and hovering and they say sleepwalking, but she's tying herself to the bed with a jump rope because Bill keeps moving her room to room. And so she just teleports into the kitchen with a knife. You think she's going to kill that brother you don't even know anything about, but instead she's there bending and breaking. And I just found it interesting that they try to discredit the doubters of this real life story. Okay, but I, I want to tell you that I laughed out loud at the whole bullying thing when the little kid, the one I, whose name I don't even know because he doesn't matter. Johnny. Yeah, Mr. Warren said the only way that we're going to win is if we don't let him bully us and went in to confront it. At least he's willing to try and get to an end here. I'm like, will someone do something? 
Where the hell's he been? I don't even know his name. <laughs> yeah, I, admittedly, there like like the last movie, too many characters in the family. You could yes. you could have condensed them, but again, they're trying to make it seem authentic by keeping it accurate to what the family really had. But I just think this is where the movie goes off the rails, much like Conjuring. One, this is where they really go full-throated on the whole she's possessed thing. Like, she contorts and gets in some kind of closet and says some gibberish, and we have this really horrible scene. Maybe the worst scene in the movie is the Warrens are kicked out, and then their audio tape forms a crucifix on the ground, and they're like, let's put these two bits together, and they form some meaningless message about what she was saying. A crucifix? I thought he literally just saw the tapes crossed and went, what if I mix them? Yeah, like that's a- what I thought, too, is that he thought he could play them on two tracks or something, a rudimentary version of two tracks. I didn't realize it was a crucifix. I thought it was like, oh, hey, look at this. My tapes are touching. Maybe I need to play them together. Yeah, but it, uh, it's both. But, I mean, the important thing is that God did this for them. That he came in and formed it in the crucifix, which has been throughout this, and Ed's talked about what the crucifix means to him. It's why they decide to do it right then and there on the train that's about to pull off and take them back to America. I think there's an airplane involved. There has to be, Stuart, because you can't take the train. <laughs> you can take a train to Hogwarts. Anyway, the point <laughs> is, is that, yeah, we it really gets crazy here. That The message that they even put together doesn't really mean anything. I guess she has to have a vision in order for us to even understand what putting all those words together could mean. It means that that poor old man ghost was just a puppet of Valak. Yeah, and it is a cool thing. Of all the little gimmicks in this film that those two things he was saying actually combined to form a secret message is perhaps my favorite bit and especially since there were times that bill i wasn't understanding him he's got a gravelly voice and a british accent and so the things that he said when he's saying help it let go i thought he said something like help me it burns and then in the cupboard He says, they won't me, won't me. I thought he was saying they won't leave, won't leave, meaning the Hodgsons are still in his house. (laughs) Yeah, I had trouble understanding him as well. Yeah, it really didn't matter what he was saying. Even when you put it together, help me, it won't let me go, is what we get out of all the two different strands of gibberish. Well, duh. I mean, I don't feel like... Obviously, that man was in some kind of pain for him to be lurking around the house. The piece that they are completely fabricating here, the big jump that they're making is that behind all of these hauntings that we've seen, all of them, there has been this crazy killer nun with the fangs, and she is going to make this little girl impale herself on a downed tree. Now we've gone off the rails, right? <laughs> now? Yeah, I, I want to ask the screenwriters that they're listening, do you feel good about this? Do you feel good <laughs> that you've taken this story and, and pushed it into this direction? You shouldn't. Here's my problem with these movies specifically, but I think it can apply to quite a few of these kinds of ghost exorcist films, is the way to defeat these spirits is banishing them by reciting something or saying your name's Rumpelstiltskin or whatever that movie's going to say you have to do at the end. Mm-hmm. The power of Christ compels you. Yes, that too. Yes, but in that movie, at least Reagan threw somebody out the window and killed them. In most of these movies, especially the bloodless ones like this one, it's the same shit that's been happening the whole movie. 
it literally just happens louder. They just now have like wind and thunder and now they're shouting instead of talking. But it's like, you know, you could have just said this six hours ago and be fine. Yes, it is a louder version of everything. They have to do a climax. We have to reach some kind of climax. I want to point out, do you know how the infield haunting stopped? The real one? No, No, I don't. The girls got into Greece. I'm not even making this up. Oh, that's funny. One of the ghost hunters bought them the soundtrack to Grease, and they started learning the moves, fell in love with John Travolta, did their hair like they were Olivia Newton-John, and lo and behold, they seemed to lose interest in The Exorcist, and the spirits just kind of stopped. You know, if I was around a whole bunch of little girls uh, singing Grease, I'd flee too. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't work for this movie. I'm not saying it's what they should have depicted. I do resent the idea that they're going to ask people to believe that this is real. This is uh, way over the top, super loud. In the modern era, what rube would believe this is real? I mean, in 99, people believed Blair Witch, and I can get that. Nothing in Blair Witch is this ridiculous. And in the 70s, you believe Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw. We didn't have the means of communication we have today. Who... Above the age of 12 is going to walk out like, yeah, that really happened. The window blew out of the house just like the scene in Ghostbusters, only it was real. (laughs) Yeah, I'm more inclined to believe that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre happened than I am The Exorcist. Well, that could be. I mean, I do believe there has been a maniac running around with a chainsaw at some point in history. (laughs) I do not believe that Crooked Man came out of the zoetrope and started like going around this living room while a blind Ed recites Latin. And yeah, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, it's not Exorcist. It's Exorcist 2. I mean, this stuff is kakumo. And I just feel like, (laughs) why would you do that? Why don't you trust the audience? What we liked about that first movie was that it made it feel authentic and real. In its best moments, in its quiet moments, it made you believe that supernatural elements were lurking in the dark. Here, this is just a full-on parody of that kind of filmmaking. It is, it's the worst. Again, we are at another shitty climax. The only thing I'll give it is I thought Ed might die. I mean, I know how Ed Warren died in real life, but given that this is totally fictitious at this point and they're leading up to it, I'm like, well, I don't know if they have three picture deals. Would they kill him? Even if they kill him, they could do just like they did in Insidious and he could be a ghost helping them in the next movie. So... I thought there was a chance Ed might die. Don't mistake this as me giving a shit if he lived or died. I just thought he might. I knew it would all end at the window. I mean, they've even like the toy that they have is Humpty Dumpty and the camera's been going in and out of windows and her vision had him impaled on some kind of stick. So once the lightning happens with the tree out front, you know that that's where people are going to wind up or get skewered. It feels obvious and yet I'm like, well, how do you rectify this? Not that you referred to this as Rumpelstiltskin is a perfect analysis. I mean, it is just, if I say the name loud enough, that will vanquish the demon. Yeah, this whole ending was way too neat and tidy and wrapped up in a little package with a nice, perfect bow on it. I mean, like, would that take her 30 seconds to finish this up to get... Moved up the walls, say the name, I know who you are, Valak, I'm saying your name, by the Christ compelling, whatever, blah, 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 go back to hell. That was super quick and very unfulfilling. 
you feel like anybody could do this. And yeah. wh- why are these guys so special? I mean, I guess yeah. her visions. What makes Lorraine Lorraine is the fact that she has these out-of-body encounters. And you have to believe that that is her communing with creatures in the further. And so... That's that. But yes, this does all end up, and there's this touching scene with Ed and Lorraine and little Janet, where Ed gives her the crucifix that he said he used because his dad was mean and said, face your fears. I'm like, you know you have a daughter, right? (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about their daughter. Yeah, I love that. Her problem is that no one liked her. They were scared of her, and she had no friends, and now she has two friends. I'm like, who are leaving you, and we'll never be back? Okay. The more important thing is getting back allows you to understand that they're bringing, what's the magical thing that they're going to put on the shelf of their cursed museum? It's the zoetrope. What we are to understand with Annabelle actually in the case behind us is that they want to do a Crooked Man movie. And so that we're going to supposedly see how the Crooked Man got in that damn zoetrope lamp and learn his whole backstory in some little spinoff that they want to do in about 18 months. Really, shouldn't they have taken the chair? (laughs) You're right. They should have taken that damn chair, considering someone ends up supposedly dying in it. But I'm not looking forward to the Crooked Man movie. I actually am, because that Crooked Man reminded me of, yes, Nightmare Before Christmas, but really, when it started attacking, it reminded me of nothing so much as Puppet Freddy from Dream Warriors. And so it was my happy moment. Well, this could stand to be a little bit more Nightmare on Elm Street for my mind, but uh, it's not. It's very much a Conjuring movie. So, here we go. No suspense now. (laughs) Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend The Conjuring 2? Marjorie. No, I can't recommend this movie. It's dull at the beginning. The end doesn't pay off. It is not scary. Again, You'd think that after watching this movie, I would be afraid to, like, turn off the lights or something. Nope. Not a problem with it. It's just, it's so blah. I guess if it hadn't been rated R, and I don't know why it was. It's too scary for PG-13. What was scary (laughs) about it? I mean, this could be, like, a Lifetime made-for-TV movie haunting movie. Seriously? Rated R for terror and horror violence. Oh, okay. We'll put a shotgun bullet into a sleeping child. That's why it is. I really think it's that one shot of the little boys getting shotgun blasts. Yeah, I guess that's it. But movie's pretty tame. This might be good for training wheels for somebody who's new to the genre. But if you're used to it and experienced in it and have your favorite movies, this is not the movie for you. Stuart. Uh, like Lorraine says midway through this movie, I feel nothing. You know, like she's brought here to try and sense whether it's a hoax or not. She can't even get a sense of whether it's real. And I watched this entire movie this way. I was just like, what the hell? Nothing is happening. Nothing is working. At least in the first movie, 40 minutes of it worked. And, you know, even in Annabelle, the first 10 minutes of it worked. But here, I never feel like this movie ever gets off the ground. I don't find these characters interesting. Their love is hollow. This event is fictitious. And every attempt to try and make it more scary by embellishing just makes it look more foolish. I actually think you're better off watching Insidious 3 if you want to watch a grumpy old ghost on an oxygen tank push a girl out of a window. 
MCB forever. Really, the one to see, I, I want to give some kind of recommend here. I don't want to just end in, in red. Is go see the Enfield Haunting. Go see that BBC TV movie. It's it's not perfect. The ending is pretty cheesy, but I think that it actually plays to the real documented events and gives a good dramatic story that doesn't feel the need to insert all of this silly Hollywood BS. And yet, even though I declare this movie not recommend, I'm sitting here thinking there are hundreds of listeners right now screaming at us to get out of the house, that we're getting it wrong, that we don't understand this franchise, and that what they liked about the first movie is still evident in this movie. And that may be true. The problem may be ultimately that I just don't get the Conjuring franchise, that it to me, it's like a chain restaurant that everyone likes to eat at because it's covered in cheese, but I just, I can't scarf down. I just don't get it. And I cannot endorse another Conjuring movie. I want to say I didn't go into this arms crossed because I didn't like the last two in this series. I had heard this was better than the first one. And you know what? You know, I'm an eternal optimist. In the face of all facts, I'll say, maybe it could be good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I went into this thinking, you know what? I rewatched The Conjuring. I liked the clap game. I liked some of it. Maybe Juan could pull this out because I really liked what Juan did with his Fast and Furious movie. I couldn't believe he had me tearing up at the end scene. And he did that. And he was good in Saw. I think this guy is a good director. What happened here? I kind of feel he went on autopilot and that. Yeah, this one, I just can't get behind at all. And I'm not opposed to a Conjuring 3 and trying another case that the Warrens didn't really investigate, but we're going to say they did. (laughs) But I just think this one was a complete misstep. I can't fathom anyone who will enjoy this movie. And I know that some of you, like Stuart said, are screaming, what the hell are you talking about? But seriously, this movie is so ill-paced, so ill-paced. It's nothing but a little bit of infestation. Then the Warrens show up, a little bit of oppression and home repair. And if you want to see ghost movies done better, yes, go see The Exorcist. It's better than this. It's old, but it's better (laughs) than this. Even the Insidious films have more fun. This film feels half-baked and like, rushed but i i will say i'm so lucky because to misquote this movie usually people only have one person to commiserate with about a bad film i've got two (laughs) and we all agree (laughs) and again i think we might be in a minority i want to point out my theater was full people reacted there were screams there was a woman behind me that was having real issues she was like oh don't go in there she's so brave oh don't hurt her I mean, really, like a, like a back and forth with the experience. That's so I awesome. know that there are people right now listening to us saying we're all wrong and we don't get it. And I agree with you. We don't get this franchise. Uh, my audience was not that way, though. I will say I've never seen a movie where people got up and left more often than this. And some of them came back, but I've never seen people be like, yeah, you know, I think I'll just get that soda refill now. They were not engrossed. This movie's going to do big numbers. They're going to make a sequel. I've looked, guys. I know that it's in our future. I've looked at some of the big case files. Here's what we're going to get. It's one of these three. They either did a case where they went to court 
and tried to support that the fact that somebody killed someone because they were possessed by a demon or they fought a werewolf. I kid you not. Or they went to a house and it was haunted by three different demons. And it's going to be one of those cases. I would love to see a werewolf movie. I'd love to cover the Howling series. <laughs> I'll second that. Well, let's not forget, before we get to Conjuring 3, which could be at least two and probably three years away, in less than one year, the series resurrects with Annabelle 2. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. That movie just gets worse and worse in my mind. I do remember really liking the retro stuff in the beginning with the cult leader before it got to the doll. But the problem with that movie is it never was about the doll. It was about some demon that held the doll. And I really feel like if they're going to make an Annabelle 2, they better make it like Chucky. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? I agree with you. It needs to be like Chucky because that would be the only way that I would be like standing up going, Yeah! I'd actually like the Annabelle Chucky crossover film. <laughs> oh, he's going to cheat on Tiffany? Yeah. Mm. Oh, no. Maybe throw some dangerous toys in there. Yeah, you know, anything would help. I, I feel like that is a go-nowhere spinoff. But Warner Brothers bought big into this. They not only were thinking we'll make Conjuring after Conjuring after Conjuring, they're expecting each movie to deliver a spinoff character that they can go for. And Crooked Man, I'm sorry, you fail. No one wants that movie. I don't have a strong feeling that they could do better than a, a very similar scenario that was proposed in Babadook, an Australian horror movie of a couple years ago. It was really fun, really atmospheric. This character reminds me of that. I'm not sure why they want to keep setting up their side characters to fail. You know, Annabelle was trapped in a Rosemary's Baby wannabe. Crooked Man is not going to fare well in comparison to Babadook. No. But we did this movie as we did last week's movie for our listeners. We are now three weeks into the summer of now playing where we are doing a total of eight theatrical releases. Nine if you count Captain America. Yeah. Eight in 11 weeks, though. That's the real key is the close proximity here between X-Men and Suicide Squad. And as we've mentioned, we talked about not doing Turtles. We talked about not doing Conjuring. We heard our listeners' voices saying, we want you to keep being completists. We want you to do these. And so we hope you heard our message. We can only keep doing these thanks to donations from listeners like you. It, it does help to know that people are listening, that they care, that they support us financially. They go to the webpage, they talk with us politely, usually is better. But yeah, that we have our fans is the reason why at this point, so long into our show, we still get excited about doing it. Even for a movie like Conjuring 2. But yes, if you donate now, last Friday, our review of Big Trouble in Little China came out. La La Land Records took note and gave us four copies of the 30th anniversary soundtrack to give away. One is being given away right now in our forums. You have to go to the Big Trouble in Little China thread. And another one's being given away. It ends tomorrow on Wednesday on Facebook. And then we've got two more to give away. I guarantee one's going to be given away on Twitter. So you can follow us there, now playing pod. But... If you want to hear the full show, Big Trouble in Little China, and this Friday, Night of the Creeps, plus, as I mentioned, Ghostbusters, Independence Day, Men in Black, you have till the end of July to do that, and all of the funds go back to help this show and to get us keep going back to theaters again and again, including Jason Bourne coming up. Starting next week, our Bourne retrospective series begins with, 
we do know listeners do love when we go and obscure the TV <laughs> miniseries. I talked with someone the other day. They're like, oh, I love Jason Bourne. And they didn't even know it was a book. But yes, not only was it a book in 1980, but in 1988, it was a TV miniseries starring a Charlie's Angel and the king of the miniseries, Richard Chamberlain, replaced by Matt Damon later, about 13 years later. I always think of them in the same thought, you know, I feel they're of a feather. (laughs) Definitely so. And we're going to talk a lot about the differences between that as we go through the whole franchise. That's going to be on the Tuesday shows. Everyone can listen to that. I hope you join us starting, even if you can't find the movie, it is a little difficult. I hope you tune in next week to hear our thoughts on the original, and I would argue much closer to the spirit of the book version of Born Identity. Yeah, the TV miniseries was on YouTube in 10 parts. It actually was officially released on DVD. It's kind of expensive. I found it at a used DVD store for 10 bucks, though, so it's out there if you want to watch it. Join us next week to see if you should, and Stuart, you're going to be over at Books and Nachos with these books? That's true. I'm going to go through the original trilogy. There are actually 13 books. They just released a new one, actually, this month. Uh, They keep cranking them out, even though the original author is dead. I am going to cover the original author's trilogy. Robert Ludlum wrote three bestsellers, 1980's Born Identity, 1986's Born Supremacy, 1990's Born Ultimatum. Those are the only ones I'm covering, but I will cover all three in three podcasts beginning next week. And I promise you, here we have... Three movies, nine red arrows. I promise you, the Bourne series is not going to be so glum. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's actually been a pretty good summer for me so far. This is my first red arrow, but I have liked Captain America. I have liked X-Men. I liked Turtles, even. And I was floored. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, uh, these are legitimate green arrows. This is maybe, hopefully, the aberration. I'm hoping that as we continue to go through back to the movie theaters, I continue to find some enjoyment. I think the darkest days are behind us. I'm really excited for most of our upcoming theatrical releases, too. So, Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until Friday with Night of the Creeps, it's over. You survived. You don't come out the other side of something like this weaker. What is there left to be scared of? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Pretty far out, isn't it? Yeah, it's groovy. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of the Insidious films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. Look what she made me do. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Sometimes when you get haunted, it's like stepping on gum. You take it with you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We got all the money tied up in this place and had a lot of repairs on top of that. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. I like your dogs. Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. But he's always sad. But I think something bad happened to him. 
now playing credit narration by Brock. It talked to me. It said that it wants my family dead. Now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, Evergreen Media Group, or Warner Brothers Pictures. The Conjuring films are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. We should talk to someone. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. The devil is the father of lies. Demons are his manipulators. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We have to get out of here. You did good. No, you did. And Franca Potenta. <laughs> I just want you to say that again. We looked it up for Born. I'm saying it right. <laughs> a new haunting is about to begin in the home of Peggy Hodgson. In, in the home in the home of Peggy Hodgson. 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 Yeah. If the Slender Man has more characterization than your hero, something's really wrong. The Crooked Man. If the crook, yeah, the Slender Man actually caused murders. I get that confused. And every time she has this vision, all she's asking is, what's your name? And I swear to God, I'm hearing this. And in my mind, every time in this movie, I'm like, who's your daddy? <laughs> is he rich? Is he rich like me? No, I mean, the association. I know that song. Time of the season. <laughs> oh, just the zombies. The zo I'll say it again. The zombies. I know that song. It's a good one. Classic 60s <laughs> song. The songs that they choose in this movie. Woo. I started a joke. I mean, oh, brother. I love Faith No More's version. <laughs> You know, wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't help giving a bad review. Oh, you went ahead and did it. Yeah, all right, well. But I, 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 I will say, I'm so lucky. Well, while Lorraine is having a cigarette outside with Maurice, it's, it's called Morris in the show, isn't it? Yeah, it's Morris. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it, it actually is Maurice, but everyone because of their accent pronounces it as Morris. It's just a different emphasis. It's Maurice, I guess. 